I'm looking forward to this study. So I've already been greatly blessed in, in studying uh, Ephesians, the first uh, segment, verses 1 to 14. And I want to take us back just briefly before I read the text, just a little history. So imagine going back in time to A.D. 52. Okay, the Apostle Paul's on his third missionary journey when he arrived in Ephesus, and he remained there for three years. And Ephesus was a very important city. I know Porter spoke a little bit about that last week. It was the gateway to Asia. It was the mouth of the Kaster River. And this would be western Turkey, okay, west side of Turkey today. And it was a major hub city uh, due to the travel through to the river and to the roads. And they went through Ephesus. It was a very much a political and commercial center, a very prosperous area. And it was the chief communication and commercial link between Rome and the east. And so merchants flocked to Ephesus, and it became a big melting pot of nations, ethnic groups, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Gentiles. Uh, Ephesus was the market of Asia Minor. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. But it was also the location of one of the seven wonders of the world, which is... This right here. So this is the temple of Artemis or Diana. And Artemis was this uh, fertility goddess. And uh, there's a picture of the goddess. And apparently there was hundreds of cult prostitutes that would would be there. And a very uh, grotesque idol. And constant sacrifices are made to that idol. It was chiseled apparently out of a meteorite. And thousands of worshipers from different countries would visit the temple every week. Now, this temple was located at the head of the harbor. So as the seamen, the merchants, and the travelers, and the soldiers got off the boat, the first thing they see is this massive uh, temple. And when Antipater of Sidon, who was a Greek poet in the second century BC, when he saw the temple of Ephesus, he wrote this. He said, I have set my eyes I've set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mosulus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. So what he's saying is compared to, to this temple here in Ephesus, all the other wonders of the world paled in comparison. And yet it's Jesus who said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was hard to be a Christian in Ephesus. The shadow of that temple was massive as the sun would start to set. And there were lots of challenges spiritually to live in Ephesus. And we can look around and we can say the same thing today. The market, the idols, the stadiums, the entertainment, and the cleavage abounds. And yet it's here where Paul was reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. And that, that is modern day, that's what's left of that. Uh, their stadium there, 25,000 people could gather there. And this continued for two years. Um, so that all, and, and the Bible says in Acts 19, where Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, that this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so now Paul is 10 years, fast forward, he's writing from prison in Rome, 
to this church now in Ephesus. And this is what he says at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things, things in heaven and things in earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask by your, your spirit that you would open our eyes now, that we might understand mysteries that are beyond human ability, that you would give ability by your spirit. We ask that you would work in us, accomplishing your good purposes. Pray that we would bear fruit that would remain. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that... that, that Ephesians 3, 1, 3 to 14 is one sentence in Greek. Now, in my Greek, I see three different periods, so I don't know when the periods were put in, but that's what all the commentators say, one sentence. 202 words, his English teacher probably was not real happy with him for the gr grammatical nightmare that he created, but he is so excited, Paul is, as he's talking, and I just want to give you a few things that a few commentators have said about this very first sentence, verses 3 to 14. One commentator said this letter is pure music. Another, it's the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Another, we enter through a magnificent gateway. Another, it's a golden chain of many links or a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. Another, it's a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. Another, this, this epistle is compared to a, some long-winded racehorse careening onward at full speed. Another, this rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera, which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. Another, this is like the preliminary flight of the eagle, rising and wheeling round as though for a while uncertain which direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. Last but not least, John Stott says that this is praise comes tumbling out of Paul's mouth in a continuous cascade with such joy and intensity that he dared not pause to take a breath, much less end it with a period. 
as you can see, there's a lot to be said here. This message that Paul begins with is for saints. He says, to the saints. Saints is always plural in the New Testament, meaning you can't say, oh, isn't so-and-so, like they're in some special category that they're a saint and others aren't. No, all the body of Christ are called saints because it has more to do with position than personal purity. You've been set apart by him called saints. And he's saying this is to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the message for the saints comes from an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This isn't coming from all other opinions are equally valid to you this morning. No, it's coming from an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God from the hand of Paul to you this morning. And the message being delivered to you is a message of grace to you and peace to you from the sovereign source of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins with worship. He worships as he writes this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship because of the soul-staggering good news of being recipients of God's favor in love in Christ. Notice the play on words. There's a bunch of, of uh, phrases that are repeated. And if you, you, know, you look through this, there's several things that, that occur three times. One of those is the word blessed in verse three. It occurs three times. Blessed, bless, blessing. Blessed be God. We worship him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay, every spiritual blessing. Does that mean material blessing? Does that mean portfolio possession? Does that mean stock? In, in, you know, does it mean riches? Does it mean health? Does it mean all the things that we tend to think it means? No. But every spiritual blessing is ours. One of the questions that always kind of begs to be asked when two people fall in love is one wants to know from the other, when did you notice me? You know, and I love to ask people when they come for premarital counseling, you know, tell me your story. When did you discover each other? When did you fall in love with each other? When did you, you know, determine that, you know, you couldn't live life without this person? And um, we'll take those questions and rather than looking at them horizontally this morning, aim them vertically. God has an answer for us. When did he notice you? He has an answer, it's very specific. He says he chose us in him, in Christ, and the phrase in him or in Christ occurs 12 times in this passage, okay? It just keeps coming up. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It was then that in love he predestined us for adoption. So when does this love story begin? How long has this been going on? How long have you been planning this? We like to ask our spouse or friend who surprises us with some gracious gift. We say, man, how long have you been thinking about this? Well, you say, when did God start loving me? Well, was it when I came to Christ? No, back up. Was it at the cross when he died for my sins? No, back up. Was it after the fall of man and God started over again with plan B? There was no plan B. Did he love me when he created mankind? No, back up. He loved me when he created the world, but way before that, 
before the foundation of the world, he chose in him his people. You can't go any further back than that. And the idea is you couldn't be any more loved than that. So some truths like this, they're like the foundations of a building. If the foundation of a building is not square and it's not level, what happens? Then the whole rest of the building will be crooked. It's kind of like if you started off buttoning your shirt this morning and you started with that bottom button, but you, you, you got the one that was the extra, you know, for in case you lose one that you can sew this one on later. And you start screwed up and you start working your way up and by the time you get near the top, Something is wrong. Well, I think what happens to a lot of Christians is they don't get this. This is foundational. It's meant for the saints to know that if you have come to love him and trust him, then you've gone through that, that door that says whoever will comes, and you come through and you turn around, as, as, as Bunyan would say, and you turn around, it's you know, chosen before the foundation of the world, and that's why you came. You see, when you know God's particular love, it's one thing, as John Piper says, for him to say, I love the whole church. It's another thing to say, I love my wife. It's a particular, peculiar love that is more specific when you say that about your spouse. When God says here he loved us and predestined us, that is particular. It's special for his people. And so if you miss this, you miss out on God's particular love for you. You see, do you see this as Jeff Thomas says? He says that election is the first saving act of God. If you're a Christian today, we owe it to our election. If you're adopted into the family of God, you owe it to God's selection. If you're forgiven and clothed in righteousness, you owe it to his divine decision. If you're spending eternity with Jesus, you owe it to election. So it's not on your present performance or how you did this week or how you didn't do this week. Even if you're in sin and, you're, and he loves you, you're in Christ. You're in Christ when you go to the grocery store, when you get in your car, when you go to work, when you have your devotion and when you screw up and get angry or when you lust and do something you shouldn't have. You're in Christ. Practically speaking, Tim Keller says on this in one of his messages on Ephesians 1, he's got a bunch. He says, if you're not growing, he says, if you tell me that you're, you're, you're not more pure than you were last year, that you're, you haven't gotten more self-control than you did last year, that you're not kinder than you were last year, if you can't tell me that, he says, what does Peter say the reason is? This is 2 Peter 1. He says that somebody needs to crack the whip over you, that, that you have to kick yourself, that you have to say, God's going to get me if I don't get on the stick. What does Peter say the promise is in 2 Peter? He says people, these people have forgotten that they were cleansed. They've forgotten that you were cleansed. In fact, what he's saying is you're nearsighted. You're not looking at the, at the grace. You see, the engine for holiness is chosenness. And in knowledge of your chosenness and appreciation of the grace of God, we need to ask ourselves, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Well, he tells us why he does this. In verse 4, he says, in verse 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in those last two words, in love. There you have it. Does it say he did this because he was in wrath, in frustration? 
in reluctance, in half-heartedness, against his will. No, none of those. In love. I've quoted before the, the song by Dang Folderberg, the classic song from the 70s. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, and longer that there have been stars in the heavens, I've been in love with you. The song doesn't really fit horizontally, but it sure fits nicely vertically. Speaking of God's love, his peculiar love, particular love for his sons and daughters in Christ. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting love. And because he's loved you with an everlasting love, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Listen to God's kindness and everlasting love in these verses. Out of God's heart, he speaks. And out of the overflow of the mouth, he, he's speaking through this apostle, Paul, and he's in love with his children. There is great love language here. Blessed with every blessing, chose us in him. In love, he predestined us to the praise of his great, glorious grace. Blessed us in the beloved. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, making known to us the mystery of his will. We've obtained an inheritance and sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those are all what we would say, that's love language. We, people wonder, you know, does God really love me? We struggle with that. He doesn't just like you, he loves you. And he likes you. <laughs> but he's loved you long before you ever discovered your own personal failures. Where we've messed up. God knew that long before he ever chose us and he didn't choose us because he foresaw how great we were going to be or how good we were or how holy we would be because the bible says that none seek him and none would ever come to him so how can this be possible well paul tells us how this is possible he says by the will of god it's how paul became an apostle he was running far from God. He was persecuting the people of God. And yet he says God set his love on him and chose him. God chose us in him. In love he predestined us for adoption. And notice it says according to the purpose of his will. That's how. Verse 9. I mean notice three times he says according to the purpose. According to his purpose. At the end of verse 5. According to his purpose. At the end of verse 8 or verse 9, according to his purpose. At the end of verse 11, according to his purpose. You see, the idea here is that we've been predestined according to his purpose who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The idea is it's not your will, not your purpose, not your counsel, not your choosing. It's his choosing, his predestinating love, his purpose, his will, his plan, which he set before in Christ, before the foundation of the world according to the counsel of his will. Our culture often speaks of fate, and they like that term, yet they can't explain it because it's not necessarily connected to God. We understand fate. We call it God's sovereignty. And just in case you were thinking this morning that, that maybe the grass was greener on the other side of the fence or, or maybe there's some other better explanation for, for the world, I mean, there's people that think there's no plan whatsoever there's no purpose to this world. 
I want you to, I read this by Bertrand Russell this week. He wrote an essay called Why I'm Not a Christian in 1957. He's an atheist. And he's committed to naturalism. And naturalism explains everything. Everything just has a cause, effect. There is nothing outside the box. Everything is what you see. He's committed to science, sold out to it. And he says that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his belief are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must, be, must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. And here's, here's, his, here's what he comes to. Only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Boy, there you have it. Don't you feel better that the grass might somehow be better on the other side? Like, what if I was just to chuck this faith and just go pursue? There you have it. A firm foundation of unyielding despair to, to safely build your life upon. Does that give you some confidence this morning? It's terrible. It's hopeless. And he basically goes on to talk about how you just got to be courageous in the midst of, you know, and there's absolutely no plan. And everything is just nothing. But just have a firm foundation of unyielding despair. Well, that's not what Ephesians 1 is saying at all. You see, look at who God is. What is he doing in Ephesians 1? Who is this God? He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are in complete harmony, and their love is connected to one another and to, their pe to his people to save his elect. Now, next week, I will try to get into the objections to election. But what I want this, this morning is that we go beyond explanation. It's meant to be adoration. That's the point. This meant to be adoration for God's people. As we look and we see God, and our response should be worship, because that's what Paul's was. Paul keeps fumbling out and, and saying the, the same phrase, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Well, what is he highlighting? He's highlighting the work of God the Father, and he says, to the praise of his glory. Then he highlights the work of the Son, and he says, to the praise of his glory. Then he highlights the work of the Holy Spirit, and he says, to the praise of his glory. Those are repeated intentionally to give you the markers to say, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit. The three members of the Godhead are at work in our salvation. Do you see that in these verses? So he's saying he chose God, the, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us? Who is he talking about? The Father. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Chose us in him, talking about the Father, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's, the, that's what he's going to do. He's going to conform us to the image of his Son. 
and we will be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, still talking about the Father, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse seven through 11, he's gonna talk about the work of Christ. And we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood? Jesus. Jesus' blood. What does his blood do? It, we are forgiven of our trespasses. We have a king of the universe who died for us. I mean, if we were just going down the river, Roger Nicole says, and we were, you know, he's a theologian, we're just going down some, some river and we're, you know, whitewater rafting, and I just said, you know, I, I want to save you, and I just jump out and I die right there on the river. You would say, what an idiot. What are you doing jumping out of the boat and dying? And that was supposed to be an act of love? There's no connection. Jesus died on a cross. The only way you understand the connection is if you realize trespasses. He's forgiven us of our trespasses. We pray it, forgive us of our debts. There's a debt we could never pay. We will be paying forever and ever and ever because God is an infinite God and we've sinned against an infinite God and we've sinned again and again and again and it requires an infinite punishment. So we've been forgiven of our trespasses because Jesus died for us. We have redemption through his blood. A redemption is a release, it's a ransom. You've been set free. That's the work of Christ. And so as he talks about Christ and all the, the wonderful blessings that have come to us in Christ, he says according to, the, to his purpose and he says to the praise of his glory. And then he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 13 and 14. That we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee, it's a deposit. It's a guarantee. And so he talks about the work of the Father, that's a past work where he chose us in him. And then the present reality is we are forgiven of our sins through the redemption, through the blood of Jesus. And the future work is the work of, being, of, of having this inheritance. And that future work is a guarantee now by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And so, what shall we say in response to this? Well, John Newton who understood this idea, one of his quotes that I love, he says, if you understand your future glory, it will make the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. Have you ever been on this great vacation that you, you're, you're depressed when you look at the pictures afterwards because you're like, I'll never get to experience something that glorious again? You see, if you understand your future inheritance, it makes the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. And so our response as God's children is to say, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's God who began the work. Who's gonna condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or naked, or danger, or sword? Can those separate you from God's love? Paul says no. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What about my sin? He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is committed to making his people Christ-like, to be conformed to the image of his son. He's eternally decreed that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this is not an excuse or a rationale to be loose with sin. He didn't choose us, though, on a pre-existing condition. Did he choose any of us because it was a pre-existing condition of holiness? Pre-existing condition of you were just a little bit special and, and better than your, than your other neighbors? Not hardly. You noticed all the passages this morning that we read were about God's choosing, and he says he chose us not because you were great, he says, you were the least. But he chose us so we would be holy and blameless before him. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so as we come to the table this morning, I just want to remind you, all these blessings come to us because we're in Christ in him. If you didn't, if it, Martin Lloyd Jones said, if you take out, if you leave out the in Christ, you don't have any blessings at all. Every blessing we enjoy as Christian people comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we get that, what that means is, is God is committed to his son, God the Father and God the Son. God would have to divorce his own son before he could divorce you. And he hates divorce. And so he is committed to you because he's committed to his son. And we are in him. And therefore secure and nothing can rip us out of his hands. He says, I and the father are one. And so we come to this table to be reminded the great assurance of pardon at this table. So come, let's pray.